Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are our top stories. Navigating flood risks, senators hear local perspectives on the challenges and potential solutions that could influence the future of the National Flood Insurance Program. Former President Trump gives an ultimatum to big Republican donors. He wants them to decide between him or Nikki Haley now, saying they can't switch sides later. President Biden blocks a Republican-led effort to protect the U.S. EV industry from China. What's the White House saying about the plan? Russia and Ukraine trading blame on the plane crash that Moscow says killed 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war. Who's responsible for the incident? And were there really prisoners on that plane? Kyiv now demanding an international investigation. Police officers in Portugal are protesting for better wages. Find out how much they're demanding and why. The winner of the Miss Japan beauty pageant hails from abroad. Her victory sparking debate about national identity. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Hi, I'm David Lamb, sitting in for Chris Beers. And to begin the show today, we're looking at the choosing between former President Donald Trump and Nikki Haley. Trump is now giving Haley's donors an ultimatum, saying they can't switch sides later. Trump wrote on Truth Social, when I ran for office and won, I noticed that the losing candidate's donors would immediately come to me and want to help out. This is standard in politics, but no longer with me. He says anyone who makes a contribution to Haley will be permanently banned from the MAGA camp. Haley responded to Trump's post, writing, quote, well, in that case, donate here. And she included a link to her donation page. The former UN ambassador last night also tried to frame her losses in Iowa and New Hampshire as wins. Here she is speaking at a rally in her home state of South Carolina. We ended up in Iowa with 20 points. We came to New Hampshire and we had 40-something points. And so we were very excited last night because we saw that we had gone up 25 points in a month and we were thrilled. Haley also called out Trump for not wanting to debate her. She challenged him again last night after bringing up the issue of aptitude tests. Trump had previously claimed he would score higher on a mental competency test than Haley. Haley said she told Trump to get on a debate stage and bring it. Trump previously said he sees no need in debating other Republicans due to his huge lead in the polls. The former president says he'll only debate President Biden. Does Haley have a chance against Trump in South Carolina? Here's what voters at the Palmetto State are saying about the candidate they're supporting. At Coastal Coffee Roasters in Somerville, a cup of coffee this time of year comes with a splash of politics. It's been a rough few years. The Palmetto State's Republican primary a month from today. We'll head out to South Carolina, where I think we're going to win easily. Nikki Haley, fresh off another decisive loss to former President Donald Trump, looking to voters in the state that elected her governor twice to keep her in this race. But voters here, over and over again, told us they've already made their choice. Donald Trump, 200%. I'll be voting for Donald Trump. Support for Trump remains strong with Republicans in South Carolina, despite his legal troubles and the fact it's now a one-on-one -on -one race with their former governor. 
I just think that Trump is a stronger presidential figure than she is. I think she should drop out, apologize to President Trump, and join forces so we can try to save this country. Voters frequently citing Trump's long list of high-profile South Carolina endorsements. This election is over. None more than Senator Tim Scott, who was appointed by Haley in 2012. I think there's going to be a surprise where I think Trump's going to landslide. Lied it, yeah, I do. With Tim Scott backing him, I do. But not everyone is ready to forfeit the race. Stephanie Bennett says she's technically undecided, but likes Haley. It's her track record as the governor here, and then what she did on the United Nations. And yet she's worried in a month her vote won't matter. I wonder if people aren't going to go into it with a preconceived notion of he's already won. You know, with I just that is a fear. Like get out and vote. Don't think he's already won because I don't think he has. With one exception, since 1980, the Republican winner of the South Carolina primary has gone, to be, gone on to be the party's nominee. Nikki Haley performed better than expected in New Hampshire, and South Carolina is her home state. She's saying the race is far from over. Is it? We're joined now by Nathaniel Cogley, Associate Professor of Political Science at Tarleton State University. Nathaniel, is this a done deal for Trump, or is the race far from over? Uh, in terms of racking up delegates for the convention, um, it's a done deal. The most credible challenger was Governor DeSantis, and he indicated he has no path forward. Um, some people are looking at Nikki Haley still in there. They're noting as you that that's her home state. But the voters of South Carolina already know her very well. They know President Trump very well. The big endorsements down there by the governors and senators have already been made. It's going to actually be more difficult for her to increase her numbers because the name recognition is already quite settled down there. They're, they're very familiar with these two candidates already. And looking ahead at the upcoming primaries beyond South Carolina, you know, more primaries are now allowing uh, unaffiliated voters to weigh in. Haley is also polling fairly well in potential matchup with Biden. So with all of that in mind, you know, is there a potential for any surprises, do you think? You know, a Haley-Biden matchup is a nice hypothetical thought. She doesn't get that matchup unless she's the Republican nominee. Um, her best chance at a victory was New Hampshire, where independents could vote for her. There's going to be some states in the cycle going forward that have a similar dynamic. But there's enough closed primary states only open to Republicans where Trump's going to have enough delegates here no matter what she tries to do. So she could stay in this race and try to get some delegates but it almost seems like a futile effort at this point. And the more that it's a futile effort, the less likely her, her efforts are gonna be funded, and maybe the less likely she wants to keep going through these states where she can't pull out a victory. And I just wanna look at Trump, he's now warning Haley's donors that they have to choose sides right now, you know, otherwise they'll be cut out of the MAGA camp. As this movement builds a groundswell around him, how much of an impact do you think that kind of a warning will have? Yes, uh, you know, Governor Haley is coming under tremendous, tremendous pressure right now to drop out. Um, it, you know, a lot of the endorsements are going with Trump. People see him as the eventual nominee, and the pressure is going to build on her. And while South Carolina is her home state, it may make sense for her to go compete there. 
we just have almost four weeks until that moment. The pressure is going to build and she can try to improve her numbers. Right now, Trump has a 30 point spread, but she can't improve it that much because, like I said, the name recognition for these two candidates is already well established. People in South Carolina already know who they are and have kind of already made up their mind. And the more that she gets closer to the idea that she's upsetting some bridges she burned, excuse me, some bridges she built in the Republican Party, and she's headed for a defeat in her home state, I'll be very surprised if she hasn't dropped out before South Carolina actually votes. All right. I mean, and Trump is polling pretty well in South Carolina currently as well. What, what are the messages that are most resonating with Republican South Carolina voters at the moment? Trump resonates in the sense that he's not trying to go there and be status quo as usual. The Republican Party uh, gets frustrated by candidates who, who talk tough and talk big, but don't actually govern in that way. Republicans saw President Trump actually tried to govern in D.C. They saw a machine try to sabotage him and take him down. And this type of narrative is just strengthened by these a political persecution of him that's unfolding with 91 indictments and, and them trying to remove him from the ballot. And the Republican base is just rallying to his support. And um, they're saying they're going to go with Trump again because he's actually a significant political figure that could govern this country in a different direction, which also explains why the powers in D.C. are so opposed to him returning. All right. Thank you so much. Nathaniel Cogley, Associate Professor of Political Science at Tarleton State University. Major weather events wreaking havoc on people's lives across the country, including deadly storms in recent weeks. The Senate is searching for solutions and managing those risks. We're now going to turn into a hearing by the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing and Urban Affairs called Reauthorization of the National Flood Insurance Program. Let's take a look. Uh, Senate uh, Banking, Housing and Urban Affairs Committee comes, will come to order. Uh, thank the witnesses for joining us. Uh, Senator Cassidy will join us in a moment. This hearing um, is a continuation of our efforts to enact long-term reauthorization of the flood insurance program, NFIP. The program's been extended uh, 28 times since September 2017. The latest extension will expire March 8th of this year. We'll discuss local leaders' perspectives on the NFIP and the challenges and potential solutions to the risks that flooding poses to communities across the country. Local leaders are on the front lines of so many issues, transportation, housing, growing challenge of flooding. Each of these is a priority for this committee. These leaders know all too well flooding is the most common and costly natural disaster facing the country. It's devastating to families and businesses and communities in every state. That's one reason, one good reason that Senator, that, that Mayor Patterson's with us from my state. The risk is increasing outdated flood maps, population growth in at-risk areas, land use patterns, overstretched infrastructure all play a role in whether people want to admit it or not. Climate change is only making it worse. It's making extreme weather events more frequent, less predictable, and, and probably more extreme all across the country. Just this month, streams overflowed in our colleague Senator Reed's uh, home state of Rhode Island. Torrential rains poured through homes in San Diego neighborhoods 
represented by Senator Butler on this committee. Flash floods have been threatening communities across Louisiana, uh, which is well represented by two colleagues today in the room. Flooding isn't, and that's just this month, flooding isn't confined to communities on the coast or even major bodies of water. As we saw in 2022, the same mountains and streams that make our Appalachian towns in Ohio and elsewhere beautiful also make family homes and local economies vulnerable to flooding in an era of more extreme rainfall, often the only available land for development in Appalachia is in or near floodplains. Disasters also often fall hardest on the families and communities that have fewer resources to prepare and respond to them, often because of where they live. Smaller rural communities often don't have easy access to resources to respond to the immediate effects of disasters, nor do they have access to the resources they need for long-term recovery and to prevent disasters in the first place. We need to ensure our families and communities can adapt and become more resilient, both to the flooding we face and to the increases we know are coming in the next several decades. Whenever possible, we wanna help communities avoid extreme flooding altogether through pre-disaster flood mitigation, doing it better than we have. NFIP is critical to that effort. Unlike a private insurance company, NFIP does not just provide insurance. Its job is to prevent and minimize flood damage in the first place not just help with a very expensive recovery. NFIP combats the overall threat of flooding through four, re four related components. Flood insurance currently covering nearly 4.7 million homes and businesses, floodplain management, floodplain mapping, and mitigation. We must reauthorize and strengthen NFIP and invest in mitigation and floodplain management before, obviously before disasters happen in communities. Recent hearings, we heard from a wide range of stakeholders who discussed the need for a long-term reauthorization to help communities and stakeholders plan, the importance of helping communities and property owners understand their risk by both improving mapping and other risk communications and through disclosure of flood hazards to prospective owners and tenants. And third, the importance of building state and local capacity to carry out our floodplain management and mitigation programs, especially for rural communities and small communities. We've heard FEMA's recommendations for strengthening the program, including forgiving the overhang of debt from previous disasters and providing means-tested assistance to help more families afford insurance. I'm interested in hearing today's witnesses' recommendations on how we can help strengthen NFIP so that it can help local communities meet these needs. I'm pleased to welcome Mayor Steve Patterson of the City of Athens, Ohio, and Southeast Ohio, to welcome you here today to discuss some of the unique challenges faced by uh, cities and towns in Appalachia. Uh, NFIP is a complex program with multiple goals and implications for many of the things people care about most, their homes, their communities, often their small businesses. I believe it's possible for us to come together uh, to reauthorize and improve this program. Today's hearings will help inform this, this effort. And this committee, uh, while sometimes partisan, often Senator Scott and I can work together on major pieces of legislation, as we have from fentanyl to holding banks accountable uh, to banking uh, medicinal marijuana money and, 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 and the like. Um, this committee, particularly on flood insurance, is more regional in outlook, perhaps, than, than partisan, and that, that should help us someday, sooner rather than later, I hope, come to some agreement on NFIP. So, um, Ranking Member Scott. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Before we get started, I'd like to take the time to welcome a Charleston native, Mr. Kanuski, as a witness today. I can't think of a more helpful perspective in dissecting the issues that are 
really local in perspective. Uh, although you now live in Minnesota, I've never met someone who left Charleston, actually, uh, full time. <laughs> Please come home soon. We really need you back. We, we, we need all the smart thinking individuals back in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, <clears throat> but we thank you for being here today. The National Flood Insurance Program comes into play when we start thinking about how to mitigate the risks that are so impactful and negative to communities across the country. As we consider potential reforms to the NFIP, we must keep in mind local perspectives and not just those from Washington bureaucrats. Because we all know that the most effective policy making typically happens closer to the problem, not further, farther away from that problem. So our federal programs should foster local innovative solutions, not regulatory red tape. You all have heard me say this before, that as a lifelong Charlestonian and South Carolina resident, as well as an insurance professional for more than 20 years having sold national, the, having sold flood insurance policies, it's really important for us to understand and appreciate the devastation caused by flooding. There's no doubt that if you're a Charlestonian and you were around in 1989, Hurricane Hugo devastated our community in ways that very few natural disasters have before. And frankly, since the storm surge was so bad and so high that it literally left boats in the middle of downtown in the streets of Charleston. More recently, Hurricanes Matthew, as well as Florence, devastated towns throughout my state and left some towns submerged. As a matter of fact, the town of Nichols, South Carolina, a very small town, was hit by both storms so bad that more than half of the houses in that small community found themselves underwater. And the devastation of, of trying to rebuild 24 months later again was undeniably and frankly impossible, but the good news is when you're surrounded by your friends and your family, the impossible becomes possible. And they worked really hard to start the process of rebuilding very quickly and frankly, very successfully. This type of repeated flooding makes recovery harder and naturally can even cause some residents to lose hope and certainly a part of the town residents that they left. It's one of the reasons why I have reintroduced my repeatedly flooded communities preparation act, which would help communities suffering from frequent flooding plan for the next storm and hopefully lower the risk. It's my hope that by encouraging flood prone areas to reduce the impact of future storms, residents will be able to focus on long term recovery. Long after the storm surge recedes, and recovery doesn't simply mean rebuilding. It also includes uplifting our communities. It includes making sure that families and neighbors learn to work together, that the synergy in the aftermath of a disaster is where community and the glue of community really manifests and reveals itself. South Carolinians who've lived through repeated flooding know this, and my home state has taken action to prevent this outcome. South Carolina's recent dedication of resources and strategic mitigation efforts are second to none. In 2023, the state's budget included significant funding for mitigation efforts that would reduce flood damage from future storms. Backing up that investment, the South Carolina Office of Resilience released a nationally praised statewide risk reduction plan, identifying the communities most vulnerable to floods and targeting mitigation resources to protect those residents. These are local solutions to local challenges. 
and they will make a huge difference in the lives of South Carolinians. And while I recognize that what works in South Carolina may not work in places like Senator Cassidy's Louisiana or Chairman Brown's Ohio, I'm confident that similar locally-based solutions and approaches could make a huge difference, not only in those communities, but to the National Flood Insurance Program itself. To support these levels, we must have substantial reform to the NFIP. Status quo is not an option. The program is financially insolvent with over $20 billion. Coming up, President Biden blocks a Republican-led effort to protect the U.S. EV industry from China. What's the White House saying about the plan? The U.S. economy crushed expectations of a recession in the fourth quarter. NTD's Don Ma explains what's behind the latest figures. We'll have the details soon when we return. What are the challenges and potential solutions to managing the risks of flooding in the U.S.? Stay with us as we delve deeper into the local perspectives. The Senate now reassessing the National Flood Insurance Program to address complaints, including high costs to consumers. A bipartisan bill in the Senate now seeks to reform the program and impose oversight on it. Let's see the testimonies on the program. Mr. Hecht, if you'd begin. Great. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Committee Chairman Brown and uh, Ranking Member Scott and the members of the committee and Senator Cassidy. I want to thank him uh, for his leadership on this issue and so many others. Um, uh, my name is Michael Hecht. I'm president and CEO of Greater New Orleans, Inc. Uh, and uh, for the past decade, we've led the Coalition for Sustainable Flood Insurance, which is a national alliance of approximately 250 organizations across 35 states. Uh, and today I'm going to discuss the need to reauthorize NFIP given its benefits to the country, the need to reform the program that's been discussed, uh, and particularly given FEMA's administration of risk rating 2.0, its associated impacts. Um, I want to be clear that first and foremost that the Coalition for Sustainable Flood Insurance absolutely supports a long-term multi-year reauthorization of NFIP to ensure program stability and to minimize the negative impact across the American economy. Um, as, as Senator Scott mentioned, uh, and as you said, Chairman, uh, a lapse is something that we cannot allow to happen. Um, this is destabilizing to the national housing market. We know, for example, that during a June 2010 lapse that about 1,400 home sale closings were canceled or delayed uh, each day. And furthermore, the benefit that NFIP provides to our nation is great and significant. It's the 5 million policyholders. And I think two points I need to make here is that, one, they are often mischaracterized as being wealthy homeowners uh, who are subsidizing their, their beachfront homes. This is just empirically, statistically not the case. Uh, in fact, a study that we ran found that 98.5% of all NFIP policies are in counties with a median household below 100,000, and 62% of all policies are in counties with a median household income below the national average of 54,000. The reality is that the NFIP program is about allowing the working coast and riverine parts of America to keep working. And, and moreover, and I think this is a very important point, we talk about the, the debt of the program and the cost of the program, which is estimated to be uh, $36 billion over the past 50 years. But on the other side of that, per FEMA's own analysis, 
the standards, the floodplain standards that have been implemented because of NFIP have saved the country $120 billion of losses over that period. So that's a net benefit for the American people of about $85 billion. Um, in terms of risk rating 2.0, there's some dramatic impacts that I would like to talk about. Um, on average, under risk rating 2.0, an NFIP policy will be uh, $1,808, which is a 104% increase over legacy rates. And rates will increase by over 50% in 41 states. To the point that's been made by the senator about the death spiral, this is a major concern about the affordability. Participation peaked at NFIP at about 5.7 million in 2009. On the day before risk rating in October 2021, there were 4.9 policies. Since then, NFIP has lost over 200,000, 215,000 policyholders. And ultimately, FEMA, through their own projections, projects losses of 900,000, 20% because of risk rating 2.0. Um, this is not going to be good for the program or America. And there's also regional impacts. Um, our region, for example, Greater New Orleans, is essential for the national economy and even global food and energy security. Uh, NFIP and risk rating does not take this into account. Good morning, Senator. For example, 50% of all US grain exports go through the Port of South Louisiana, which is in our region. The average increase under risk rating 2.0 is going to be 239% in that region. If our workers cannot live there, this is going to have impacts on our ability to supply America and the world with food. And finally, in conclusion, we do believe that NFIP should absolutely be reauthorized, but also reformed. Uh, Congress did not cause the risk rating 2.0 problems, but has the ability to impact them and to make them better. So some of our priorities, many of which are reflected in the National Flood Insurance Program Reauthorization and Reform Act of 2023 include requiring a peer review of risk rating 2.0 methodology and a thorough and holistic analysis of economic impacts, mandating FEMA's transparency through the release of a usable public-facing risk calculator and also a rating appeals process. We need to lower annual premiums from 18 to 9% cap. We need to enact a means-tested assistance program, ideally looking at housing burden, which is a little bit more subtle than even just looking at percentage of AMI. And finally, the debt uh, and interest payments should be frozen and redirected into mitigation because ultimately mitigation is how, as a nation, we are going to work our way out of this challenge. These policies, which will resolve affordability, transparency, and accuracy concerns, would serve to stabilize participation, sustain the program, and support communities across the country. Uh, again, thank you for the opportunity to speak today, and thank you for your service, and I look forward to taking your questions. President Biden winning his fight against House Republicans over EV charging stations. On Wednesday, he vetoed a bill so that federally funded EV charging stations can use imported iron and steel as long as they're assembled on U.S. soil. Adding more EV charging stations nationwide is a priority for the Biden administration. The survey shows that many are hesitant to buy electric vehicles because charging stations are not as widespread. The infrastructure law has earmarked over $7 billion to build charging stations nationwide, but the law also requires stations built with federal money to use iron and steel produced in the U.S. The White House issued a waiver on that rule, but House Republicans and some Democrats fought back, introducing a bill to kill the waiver. 
They argue it hurts American companies and empowers China to control American energy infrastructure. The White House argues that if the waiver is killed, the administration would have to use Buy America rules from the 1980s, and that doesn't require domestic manufacturing for many goods. And joining us now is NTD Business host Don Ma to discuss new U.S. GDP numbers. The U.S. economy grew faster than expected in the fourth quarter. According to the Commerce Department, GDP in the last quarter rose 3.3%. Break down the numbers for us, Don. All right, so first of all, this number is a slight deceleration compared to the third quarter from 2023, which the economy grew at a really fast pace of 4.9%. Um, but, you know, a 3.3% uh, is still higher than what a lot of economists, a lot of analysts had expected for what would be um, for the third quarter. But keep in mind that this is just the first GDP number estimate. There's going to be a couple more revisions after this number. Um, so in the end, probably uh, the 3.3% growth rate will be different uh, in, a, in a few months uh, after those revisions. Um, so strong consumer spending was a big contributing factor to uh, this GDP number, uh, which is expected because the U.S. economy is made up of uh, two, around two-thirds uh, in terms of consumer spending. GDP report also showed that uh, despite the, the pace of growth in the last quarter, uh, inflationary measures continue to ease. Uh, so we're seeing consumer prices rising at a 1.7% annual rate, and this is down from a higher 2.6% uh, rate in the third quarter. And as well, increased government spending contributed to this GDP number. Uh, the increase in state and local government spending were uh, for infrastructure and for as well in pay for government employees. And of course, it goes without saying that uh, what we're seeing now is definitely defying expectations uh, and predictions that we were going to see a recession maybe last year, uh, maybe uh, this year, but many, uh, many believe that increased government spending and liquidity into the economy has helped uh, fend off a recession. Okay, so break this down for us. How is the economy looking, especially ahead of the election? Right, so first of all, no U.S. president wants to go into re-election with a bad economy. Uh, so if Biden, for example, he went into the general election against former President Trump with uh, you know, slow economic growth, uh, say, uh, high unemployment, high inflation, and a recession, he's not going to do well in that case. He's going to have very few talking points to, to tout about how good of a job he's doing if that were the case of the economy. And at the same time, it's going to give Trump a lot of ammunition against Biden. Um, and he's, uh, Biden's definitely going to lose some votes if that were the case. But, you know, luckily for Biden, the economy... Uh, doing pretty well by many government metrics. Uh, you have historically low unemployment numbers, uh, good job numbers being added to the U.S. economy every month, and no recession in sight. And uh, you have an economy uh, that now we're seeing at, is growing at a higher than expected pace. And at the same time, you have a stock market that is hitting all-time highs for a few days in a row now. So if you just look at those numbers, there's uh, nothing wrong with the economy. And so, you know, Biden has been lucky on this front, because if you remember, and I, as I mentioned earlier, there were a lot of predictions that the U.S. would go into a downturn. Yeah, there's certain, certainly where it's, it's an interesting turn of events here. Thank you so much, Don. Thank you.
Coming up, we speak with a presidential historian on former President Trump's victory in both Iowa and New Hampshire. Find out when the last time a non-incumbent candidate managed to pull this off. The winner of the Miss Japan beauty pageant hails from abroad. Find out why her victory is sparking debate more shortly here on NTD News Today. For more analysis on former President Trump's recent victories in Iowa and New Hampshire, I spoke with Jane Hampton, Jane Hampton Cook, a presidential historian and author of War of Lies. Jane Hampton Cook, thank you for joining me today. So uh, former President Donald Trump is the first non-incumbent since 1976 to win both Iowa and New Hampshire. Tell us about this historic win and the last time it happened. Are there any parallels? Well, certainly this is a very historic moment for Donald Trump and for the Republican Party because it's very rare for someone who's lost an election to come back and win again. And then you, in 1976, you had an incumbent with Gerald Ford, the sitting president, but you also had someone on the Democrat side, Jimmy Carter, who was the governor of Georgia, and he was out hustling the, and handshaking his opponents in the Democrat primary. And so he really sort of sprung out of nowhere. And for Donald Trump to now be, I, I think he's the third, uh, only he's won the New Hampshire primary three times. And I don't think that's happened before either. So it's a very historic win. He's really the comeback kid in the, in, at the moment because um, his supporters have galvanized around him and he's you know doing very, very well in these two early contests. And he did not win Iowa when he ran in 2016. And so I think that's a really important factor. It shows his strength among Republican Party voters. And so Trump is now largely considered the inevitable Republican nominee. And according to many polls, he has a good chance at winning against President Joe Biden in the general. So uh, Jane, when was the last time an incumbent lost a presidential election and then was reelected again second term like, has this happened before? It's happened one other time in American presidential history. So back in the 1880s, Grover Cleveland, he was a lot like Trump in that he was from New York, although he had been governor of New York. He became president. He was the first Democrat president since the Civil War. So that was really important. And he was really focused on labor and working and the, the working man. But he lost, after four years, his first term, he lost to Benjamin Harrison, who was a Republican. Harrison only had one term. He wasn't all that popular. And um, Cleveland beat him and came back to be president again. In fact, when uh, Cleveland left office, his wife told the White House staff, we'll be back. So there was always a plan for Cleveland to try to come back, and he did. And that's the only other uh, time um, that we've had a president lose and then come back to win again. And so it certainly seems like that's the path that could happen with, with President Trump's return. Jane, what other historic elements could be at play in this year's election cycle? And please tell us more about those we've already seen so far. Well, you know, I think the fact that there's a lot of focus on President Biden's um, policies, people are unhappy, they're, they're unhappy with their own economic situation. Um, and that really, you know, it's the economy stupid was pinned by a Bill Clinton uh, staffer. And so 
it really does kind of sometimes come down to the economy and how people are doing. But also people see a mental loss of competency in President Biden and people's um, confidence in him, just his ability just to do the job is low. And I think that's different. We really haven't seen that in a very, very long time. Um, and, you know, people took jabs at Ronald Reagan as he got older, but now we're, we're really seeing it in a negative way play out. And I think people are concerned. And I think that's another reason why people are gravitating toward President Trump again. All right, Jane Hampton Cook, presidential historian and author of War of Lies. Thank you so much for joining our show. Thanks for having me. Now an update on the Russian military plane that crashed that allegedly killed 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war. The Kremlin has accused Ukraine of shooting it down. And today, Russian officials said they warned Ukraine that the airplane was approaching before it was allegedly shot down. The Ukrainian side was officially warned. I underline this. Officially warned 15 minutes before the plane entered the zone. They were given complete information which they received and confirmed its receipt. Yesterday, Ukraine's military intelligence said it wasn't told how Russia would bring the prisoners to the handover point and that Russia never asked to ensure airspace security. It also suggested the incident may have been orchestrated by Moscow. Kyiv has yet to confirm the allegations that it shot the plane down. Ukrainian officials also say they can't confirm that there were indeed prisoners of war on the plane, and they're calling for an international probe into the crash. From our side, we will do everything to ensure this investigation will happen. We will suggest several options, involve experts, Ukrainian as well as international. But I am convinced that just as in previous incidents, the Russians will make loud statements but will not allow anyone into their territory will not hand over any materials for analysis and will simply blame Ukraine, saying we were at fault. That's as Ukrainian officials are accusing Russia of violating the Geneva Convention. They say all responsibility for the life and health of prisoners of war is in the hands of the country that holds them captive. In Portugal, thousands of police officers are protesting for better wages. They're asking for more than double in hazard pay. According to a police union, the Criminal Investigation Police in Portugal earns hazard pay of up to $1,000 per month. But the Public Security Police only get around $400 per month in hazard pay. They claim this difference is discriminatory. Public Security Police are seeking an increase in hazard pay. The monthly minimum wage in Portugal is only around $900. Its economy is much weaker than those of other Western European nations, such as France or Germany. Portugal's Socialist Party is currently in control of the country's parliament. And turning to Egypt, with the country's government ministries now moved to a new capital, an effort is underway to revamp Cairo's historic center. Here's more. Cairo's historic center is getting a new look. Egypt's sovereign wealth fund is finalizing a master plan to revamp the area. Now that government ministries have largely moved to a new capital to the east, the fund expects to take over many former government buildings. So we want to revitalize downtown Cairo to really live up to uh, its true potential. Hospitality, which is lacking in downtown Cairo, uh, 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 leisure, uh, uh, cultural uh, outlets, 
uh, office space for startups and business process outsourcing, and a little bit of long-term stay apartments, and, and there is a, a big push towards that as well. The historic center was modeled on Paris in the 1860s. It is filled with elegant but crumbling buildings that were nationalized in the 1950s and 1960s and left in disrepair. The new plan will discourage some activities, such as warehousing and storage, while encouraging others, such as tourism. Soliman did not rule out reports that a soaring skyscraper could be constructed. But the new plan provides a preservation of architectural styles through a permitting system, weekend pedestrian zones, and the creation of parking garages will also be in place. Soliman added that the sprawling former interior ministry compound would include a three-star Moxie hotel by Marriott. We have aspirations for, for more buildings to come our way. We've received already uh, uh, interest from a lot of developers to come in, especially after the announcement and, and the, the progress on the uh, privatization of the, of the hotels. All of those are positive, encouraging elements. Soliman added that the work on the ground would begin, quote, probably within the first half of this year. A Japanese court sentenced a man to death today. He was convicted for the 2019 arson attack at the Kyoto Animation Studio that killed 36 people and injured dozens. It was Japan's deadliest arson attack in decades. Shinji Aoba, now 45 years old, set the studio ablaze in 2019 by dousing the entrance area of the Kyoto-based studio, better known as KyoAni, with petrol, killing mostly young artists. He himself suffered heavy burns and underwent intensive treatment for nearly a year. Reports say Ioba held a grudge against the studio known for the series Violet Evergarden. Ioba told police that he believed the studio had plagiarized his novel, an allegation KyoAni denies. Prosecutors had demanded the death penalty for Ioba, while local media say his defense sought a lighter sentence or to have him acquitted due to, quote, mental incompetence. The arson attacks sent shockwaves not only through Japan, where violent crime is rare, but also through the studio's far-reaching overseas fan base and prompted condolences from world leaders. And next, a Ukrainian-born model has been crowned the winner of the Miss Japan beauty pageant. Her victory has since sparked debate on what it means to be Japanese. I live as a Japanese person, but I have to say there have been racial barriers, which meant there were many instances where I wasn't accepted. I'm just filled with so much gratitude that I have really been accepted as a Japanese person today. Carolina Shino spoke in fluent Japanese during her tearful acceptance speech. Shino says she hopes people will see past her looks and recognize that she is Japanese in spirit. The 26-year-old model was born in Ukraine. She has lived in Japan for more than 20 years and is a naturalized citizen. If you have any news tips or feedback for our show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are our top stories. Former President Trump gives an ultimatum to big Republican donors. He wants them to decide between him or Nikki Haley now, saying they can't switch sides later. Trump is back in New York court today for the E. Jean Carroll defamation trial. We have more on the witnesses and the latest in the case. 
Coffee enthusiasts might not want to hear what a Swiss banker at the World Economic Forum has to say about the carbon footprint of the caffeinated beverage and sparking backlash online. The U.S. sends a Navy warship through the Taiwan Strait ahead of a delegation that met in Taiwan today. More on their pledge for firm U.S. support in the face of Chinese re regime aggression. A confrontation between a pianist and a group of Chinese people going viral on YouTube. A closer look at the dispute. A treehouse high in the Amazon rainforest canopy. It's the home of educational programs for indigenous communities in Peru. What's the goal behind the unusual classroom? This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Hello, I'm David Lamb, sitting in for Chris Beers. And we begin with the ongoing defamation trial between former President Trump and E. Jean Carroll. Trump is now testifying in his own defense court. The trial resumes three days after it was suspended due to COVID-19 concerns. The first witness taking the stand was Robbie Myers, Carroll's former boss at Elle magazine. Carroll's lawyers played Trump's deposition video from 2022. In it, the former president called Carol a liar and her allegations a hoax. The lawyers also presented evidence of Trump's post-trial press conference from last week, as well as his true social posts denying knowledge of Carol. Trump's defense attorney asked the judge to dismiss the case. She said Carol didn't prove a connection between damages and Trump's statements. The judge denied the request. An earlier civil trial found Trump liable for sexual assault and defamation. The verdict carries over to the defamation trial. District Judge Lewis Kaplan has already limited what Trump can say. The judge barred Trump from denying the assault or claiming that Carroll made up the story. Carroll is seeking at least $10 million in damages. The current trial focuses on determining how much Trump should pay Carroll. Choosing between former President Donald Trump and Nikki Haley, Trump is now giving Haley's donors an ultimatum, saying they can't switch sides later. Trump wrote on Truth Social, When I ran for office and won, I noticed that the losing candidate's donors would immediately come to me and want to help out. This is standard in politics, but no longer with me. He says anyone who makes a contribution to Haley will be permanently banned from the MAGA camp. Haley responded to Trump's post, writing, well, in that case, donate here, and included a link to her donation page. The former UN ambassador last night also tried to frame her losses in Iowa and New Hampshire as wins. Here she is speaking at a rally in her home state of South Carolina. We ended up in Iowa with 20 points. We came to New Hampshire and we had 40-something points. And so we were very excited last night because we saw that we had gone up 25 points in a month and we were thrilled. Haley also called out Trump for not wanting to debate her. She challenged him again last night after, after bringing up the issue of aptitude tests. Trump had previously claimed he would score higher on a mental competency test than Haley. Haley says she told Trump to get on a debate stage and bring it. Trump previously said he sees no need in debating other Republicans due to his huge lead in the polls. The former president says he'll only debate President Biden. And a fight for a Senate seat in Montana is heating up. 
Former Navy SEAL and Republican candidate Tim Sheehy says his fundraising is paying off. Fox News Digital reported Sheehy's campaign raised nearly $2.5 million during the fourth quarter. That includes a substantial $450,000 in personal contributions. Sheehy is trying to unseat Democratic Senator John Tester. The former Navy SEAL says his campaign is now in the strongest position and expressed gratitude to what he called America First conservatives for their support. Despite the promising financial figures, Sheehy faces the prospect of a primary competition from Republican Congressman Matt Rosendale, who's contemplating a Senate run. And a former Trump trade advisor is being sentenced for contempt of Congress today. Peter Navarro was convicted last year for not complying with the 2022 subpoena. He's Nav Here's Navarro before entering the courtroom. The uh, United States versus Peter Navarro has turned out to be a very important landmark constitutional case that is going to resolve important issues about the constitutional separation of powers as well as uh, the integrity, uh, efficiency of presidential decision making. Uh, we'll see what happens today, as, as Donald Trump loves to say. Let's see what happens. Uh, be happy to share with you my thoughts after this. Navarro's subpoena was issued by the former House Select Committee that investigated the January 6th Capitol breach. Last week, a judge denied his request to redo the trial. Navarro's attorneys had argued that jurors may have been influenced by political protesters when they took a break during deliberations before announcing the verdict. They claimed it was grounds for a mistrial. Federal prosecutors want a six-month prison sentence for Navarro. His attorneys, however, are asking for a sentence of no more than six months probation and a $200 fine. With one exception, since 1980, the Republican winner of the South Carolina primary has gone, to be, gone on to be the party's nominee. Nikki Haley performed better than expected in New Hampshire, and South Carolina is her home state. She's saying the race is far from over. Is it? We're joined now by Nathaniel Cogley, Associate Professor of Political Science at Tarleton State University. Nathaniel, is this a done deal for Trump, or is the race far from over? Uh, in terms of racking up delegates for the convention, um, it's a done deal. The most credible challenger was Governor DeSantis, and he indicated he has no path forward. Um, some people are looking at Nikki Haley still in there. They're noting as you that that's her home state. But the voters of South Carolina already know her very well. They know President Trump very well. The big endorsements down there by the governors and senators have already been made. It's going to actually be more difficult for her to increase her numbers because the name recognition is already quite settled down there. They're, they're very familiar with these two candidates already. And looking ahead at the upcoming primaries beyond South Carolina, you know, more primaries are now allowing uh, unaffiliated voters to weigh in. Haley is also polling fairly well in potential matchup with Biden. So with all of that in mind, you know, is there a potential for any surprises, do you think? You know, a Haley-Biden matchup is a nice hypothetical thought. She doesn't get that matchup unless she's the Republican nominee. Um, her best chance at a victory was New Hampshire, where independents could vote for her. There's going to be some states in the cycle going forward that have a similar dynamic. Uh, 
But there's enough closed primary states only open to Republicans where Trump's going to have enough delegates here no matter what she tries to do. So she could stay in this race and try to get some delegates, but it almost seems like a futile effort at this point. And the more that it's a futile effort, the less likely her, her efforts are going to be funded and maybe the less likely she wants to keep going through these states where she can't pull out a victory. And I just want to look at Trump. He's now warning Haley's donors that they have to choose sides right now. You know, otherwise they'll be cut out of the MAGA camp. As this movement builds a groundswell around him, how much of an impact do you think that kind of a warning will have? Yes, uh, you know, Governor Haley is coming under tremendous, tremendous pressure right now to drop out. Um, it, you know. A lot of the endorsements are going with Trump. People see him as the eventual nominee, and the pressure is going to build on her. And while South Carolina is her home state, it may make sense for her to go compete there. We just have almost four weeks until that moment. The pressure is going to build, and she can try to improve her numbers. Right now, Trump has a 30-point spread, but she can't improve it that much because, like I said, the name recognition for these two candidates is already well-established. People in South Carolina already know who they are and have kind of already made up their mind. And the more that she gets closer to the idea that she's upsetting some bridges she burned, excuse me, some bridges she built in the Republican Party, and she's headed for a defeat in her home state, I'll be very surprised if she hasn't dropped out before South Carolina actually votes. All right, I mean, and Trump is polling pretty well in South Carolina currently as well. What, what are the messages that are most resonating with Republican South Carolina voters at the moment? Trump resonates in the sense that he's not trying to go there and be status quo as usual. The Republican Party uh, gets frustrated by candidates who, who talk tough and talk big, but don't actually govern in that way. Republicans saw President Trump actually tried to govern in D.C. They saw a machine try to sabotage him and take him down. And this type of narrative is just strengthened by these a political persecution of him that's unfolding with 91 indictments and, and them trying to remove him from the ballot. And the Republican base is just rallying to his support. And um, they're saying they're going to go with Trump again because he's actually a significant political figure that could govern this country in a different direction, which also explains why the powers in D.C. are so opposed to him returning. All right. Thank you so much. Nathaniel Cogley, Associate Professor of Political Science at Tarleton State University. A hot cup of coffee is, in the morning is something that many people enjoy, but could the environment be paying a heavy tax for that energizing beverage? Entity's Daniel Monahan has the take of a Swiss banker speaking at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. A clip of Swiss banker Hubert Keller laying bare the alleged dark side to many people's favorite morning ritual went viral on X, viewed millions of times since it was shared on Monday. Basically, the coffee that we all drink um, emits between 15 and 20 tons of CO2 per ton of coffee. Keller says people should be aware of the true cost of the beloved treat. Every time we drink coffee, we are basically putting CO2 into the atmosphere. The Swiss banker added that most coffee is produced through monoculture, which is when the same crop is grown on the same land over and over. According to Keller, the quality of such land deteriorates rapidly. Some on social media were critical of the Swiss banker's talk. The ex-user concerned citizen wrote, 
The globalist communist overlords won't be satisfied until you're taxed on CO2, meaning they are coming for your private car, your annual holiday, your gas boiler, and more. Commentator James Melville wrote on X, Net Zero Zealots speaking at the WEF are now blaming CO2 emissions on drinking coffee. The whole thing is like an episode of Black Mirror. While columnist Tim Young criticized the WEF for saying coffee is bad for the environment and wrote, you'll have nothing and you'll like it, which is derived from a similar statement made in a 2016 WEF video which said, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. More trouble in the Red Sea. U.S. Central Command says Houthi terrorists fired three anti-ship missiles at a Maersk container ship yesterday. CENTCOM says two of the missiles were shot down and that a third came down nearby. Maersk said nearby explosions forced two ships from its U.S. subsidiary to turn around. The logistics company says the ships were carrying U.S. military supplies and that it's suspending Red Sea transits by its U.S. flagged vessels. There were no injuries or damage reported. Central Command says two more Houthi ready-to-launch missiles were destroyed in strikes yesterday. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says the U.S. is acting in self-defense. He called the Houthi attacks unpredictable and dynamic. Kirby stated U.S. strikes will continue as long as the Houthis continue their attacks. And up next, New York City's mayor is again calling for government intervention to help with the illegal immigration crisis. We bring you his latest appeal to the Biden administration. Many states are gearing up to implement laws to precisely define biological sex and gender. We speak with an evolutionary biologist on his take. More in just a moment here on NCD News Today. Tensions on the rise between Texas and the Biden administration. Texas is defying orders to evacuate its National Guard from certain border areas. Officials around the U.S. are now picking sides in the ongoing battle. Multiple Democrats are calling on Biden to seize control of the Texas National Guard. Texas Congresswoman, Congressman Joaquin Castro says POTUS needs to establish sole federal control of the Texas National Guard now. Democratic Congressman Greg Kassar, also from Texas, agrees with his colleague. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, meanwhile, says Texas is upholding the law while Biden is flouting it. Florida will keep assisting Texas with personnel and assets. At the same time, in New York City, Mayor Eric Adams is asking for federal action again. Adams says his city can't deal with the immigration crisis on its own. The federal government must step up and step in. This is a national crisis that calls for a national solution so that our newest arrivals can contribute to our economy like the generations of immigrants before them. Adams previously called on the federal government to provide work authorizations to illegal immigrants. He stopped short of calling for tougher enforcement of immigration laws in his state of the city speech on Wednesday. Adams also praised how the city supported the 170,000 arriving migrants. He says the city gave them food, asylum, medical care, and more. 
Many states are gearing up to implement laws that give precise definitions to biological sex and gender. That's as Missouri lawmakers debated this month on permanently banning on transgender procedures for minors. I spoke with Colin Wright, an evolutionary biologist and a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, to discuss these latest updates. Colin, in an era where people are identifying as a different gender from their biological sex at rates never seen before, you actually submitted expert testimony in the state of Missouri defending biological sex. Tell us about your testimony. Yeah, so my testimony is sort of meant to root laws in biological reality. As you mentioned, there's this surge in people who are uh, claiming to identify as the opposite sex, which is wreaking havoc on a lot of the laws that are meant to be, uh, you know, protecting individuals on the basis of their, their sexual category, uh, whether they're males or females. Um, and so a lot of laws have been put in, in place that uh, attempt to disrupt the idea of biological sex at all, and just making it a complete free-for-all where anyone can identify as any sex they want to and into any sex-segregated space that they would like to. Uh, so what the Heritage Foundation did is they made something called the Defining Sex Act. It's a model legislation uh, that anybody can use and uh, something I helped them develop. And basically it just makes it so there are some very concrete laws that are rooted in biological reality that activists won't be able to undermine uh, at all. We still have a very difficult time trying to poke holes in this uh, very strict biological definition. And that's what my testimony did. It meant to uh, outline what biological sex is and why the, the Defining Sex Act model legislation is really important for upholding sex-based rights. Colin, states around the country are looking at passing laws to clearly define biological sex. And uh, the one, models one model legislation put out by the Heritage Foundation that you mentioned, um, could you tell us more about that and what would it do if it's adopted and signed? If it's adopted, it will, again, it'll make a very clear and definitive definition of what it means to be male or female in law. Because again, activists have been undermining this. They've been trying to root it in a completely subjective notion of gender identity, which uh, makes no sense because it's just a total free-for-all. Um, and this will actually go a long way into helping restrict things like gender-affirming care, uh, which is a euphemism for you know sex change surgeries and hormones for children. Uh, there's a big attempt to try to say that sex is a social construct or a spectrum or comprised of many different characteristics, which the implication being that you can modify all these and literally change someone's sex. The Defining Sex Act points out that changing your sex is actually impossible because uh, a lot of the traits that are associated with being male and female, such as breasts or having beards, uh, these are just sort of superficial traits and they don't actually change your sex in any way. So uh, if you can't actually change your sex, then uh, gender affirming care, the whole uh, basis for that is, uh, is on sh uh, shaky ground. And we've heard about states like California that are like implementing and supporting um, gender changing procedures as well. So in Missouri, could, Missouri could be the first state to implement this kind of law that's, uh, that bans that. If it does, do you expect more states to follow suit in 2024? Absolutely. The, Missouri really uh, sort of 
shot the gun really early. They went really fast. Um, as soon as the new year began, they pretty much started filing the Defining Sex Act into their legislation. Um, a lot of other states I know are about, uh, you know, are currently gearing up to do the same thing. Uh, that just takes a little longer for them. So I think upwards of 20 states do plan on in implementing the Defining Sex Act. And I hope I can help them, uh, you know, with expert testimony or even defending it in court if they need to. Colin, you faced a lot of backlash from uh, within the academic world for your stance and outspokenness on, on this issue. How do you how do we depoliticize this issue and find a consensus in upholding biological sex while also caring for those suffering from gender dysphoria? Yeah, I think we basically need to rally around biological reality and this idea that your sex can be mismatched to your brain if you're exhibiting gender non-conforming behavior. I think this is an incredibly sexist notion. This goes against sort of a lot of liberal principles of uh, accepting people as individuals as who they are and not defining manhood or womanhood in terms of stereotypes. And I think that's a message that we can all sort of get behind, that we're not trying to uh, prescribe certain behaviors for people. People should be able to identify any way they want to, but there are certain contexts in society uh, where your sex does matter, such as what restroom you're using, what locker room, what prison you're going to. Um, and I think most people agree with this. It, it's really not a partisan issue when you take polls. All right, Colin Wright, evolutionary biologist and founding editor of Reality's Last Stand. Thank you so much for joining us. The state of Washington has announced a nearly $150 million settlement with drug maker Johnson & Johnson. The agreement comes more than four years after the state sued the company over its role in the opioid addiction crisis. They can't unfortunately bring back the lives that we've lost, um, but they are bringing resources to our communities and to our state that we are able to invest in ways that will um, help people recover. The conduct of large corporations that fuel this epidemic in pursuit of profits, that's what this is, it's outrageous. The announcement Wednesday by Attorney General Bob Ferguson came as overdose deaths have risen across the state with over 2,000 in 2022. That's more than twice as many deaths as there were in 2019 from the same cause. Under the deal, the state and local governments would have to spend over $120 million to address the opioid crisis. That includes money for substance abuse treatment, expanded access to overdose reversal drugs, and services that support pregnant women on substances. A manhunt is underway in Philadelphia after a 17-year-old murder suspect escaped from custody Wednesday morning. Authorities say Shane Pryor escaped while being transported to a local hospital. Pryor is a suspect in a 2020 murder. He had been a juvenile detention center awaiting trial since he was 14 years old. Authorities were transporting him from a detention center to a children's hospital over a hand injury. As Pryor was getting out of the vehicle at the hospital, he was able to escape from the detention center staff. Officials say he then ran from the hospital and later was seen on surveillance video. He entered various buildings trying to get re resources. It does not appear that he was handcuffed. Police say Pryor is considered dangerous and officers are encouraging the public to call 911 if they see him. Amazon's Ring is now shutting down its video sharing program that's popular with police. It will no longer let police and other government agencies request doorbell camera video directly from users from within the company's Neighbors app. 
Instead, authorities seeking videos must now submit a formal legal request to the company. A consumer advocacy group says hundreds of law enforcement agencies have struck up partnerships with Ring. The partnerships can help shed light on local crimes, but critics say they're invasive, creepy, and threaten citizens' rights. And next up, a couple of product recalls. Ford is recalling nearly 2 million Explorer SUVs. There are issues with a piece of the trim near the windshield. The metal piece that runs up the left and right side of the front windshield may not be properly hooked, allowing the trim to detach. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration reports it's a potential safety hazard and increases the risk of a crash. All Ford Explorer 2011 to 2019 models are affected. Halion Healthcare is recalling eight lots of Robitussin syrup due to microbial contamination. They include adult versions of Honey CF Max Day and Honey CF Max Nighttime. The contaminated products have expiration dates of 2025 and 2026. Their lot numbers are on the FDA website. Halion says it hasn't heard of any adverse reactions to the products. And the FDA has more updates on the lead contamination of cinnamon applesauce pouches. The products weren't properly tested during the manufacturing process. In a report, the FDA says the Austro Food Facility in Ecuador did not sample any of the finished product and that the facility didn't have, quote, adequate sanitary facilities and accommodations. The CDC says there were nearly 400 reports of illnesses linked to the tainted applesauce as of last week. Exposure to lead can cause numerous health issues, including developmental delays for children, vomiting, and weight loss. A recall is in effect for the products. They were sold under the Wanabana Schnucks and Waze brands. Coming up, President Biden blocks a Republican-led effort to protect the U.S. EV industry from China. What's the White House saying about the plan? The latest in a string of accidents across China. At least 39 are dead after construction materials caught fire in a southern Chinese basement. We'll have the details soon when we return. President Biden winning his fight against House Republicans over EV charging stations. On Wednesday, he vetoed a bill so that federally funded EV charging stations can use imported iron and steel as long as they're assembled on U.S. soil. Adding more EV charging stations nationwide is a priority for the Biden administration. A survey shows that many are hesitant to buy electric vehicles because charging stations are not as widespread as they could be. The infrastructure law has earmarked over $7 billion to build charging stations nationwide, but the law also requires stations built with federal money to use iron and steel produced in the U.S. The White House issued a waiver on that rule, but House Republicans and some Democrats fought back, introducing a bill to kill the waiver. They argue that it hurts American companies and empowers China to control American energy infrastructure. The White House argues that if the waiver is killed, the administration would have to use Buy America rules from the 1980s, and that doesn't require domestic manufacturing for many goods. The U.S. sailed a Navy warship through the Taiwan Strait yesterday as a congressional delegation set out to visit the island for the first time since its presidential election. The Navy stated its destroyer used a corridor beyond the territorial sea of any coastal state. Entities Jeremy Sandberg has more on the pledge for freedom of navigation 
and the U.S. delegation's promise to Taiwan. The USS John Finn transited the Taiwan Strait Wednesday as a U.S. delegation met to reaffirm U.S. support after the island's democratic elections. The Navy said the destroyer's transit demonstrates the U.S.'s commitment to upholding freedom of navigation for all nations as a principle, stating no member of the international community should be intimidated or coerced into giving up their rights and freedoms. The Chinese regime accused the U.S. of trying to undermine peace and stability. Taiwan's defense ministry said it monitored the U.S. warships south through the strait, calling the situation normal. The U.S. Navy's last announced passage of a warship through the strait was in early November last year. It was joined by a Canadian frigate at the time. Leaders of the U.S. Congressional Taiwan Caucus visited Taipei Thursday, saying Taiwan can rest assured they have Washington's firm support. We are proud of the people of Taiwan. We are proud of the relationship, and as strong as that relationship has always been, rest assured, it will even be stronger. Taiwan's president-elect Lai Ching-de asked for continued U.S. support and deeper bilateral cooperation. I also hope that the two co-chairs and our friends in the U.S. Congress can continue to support Taiwan in bolstering its self-defense capabilities to jointly safeguard the peace and prosperity across the Taiwan Strait, as well as the region. The U.S. is Taiwan's most important international backer and arms seller. The Chinese regime views Taiwan as its own territory, despite never having ruled the island. It's threatening to use force to bring it under its control. Taiwan's defense ministry said it detected 18 Chinese Air Force planes operating around Taiwan last week in joint combat readiness patrols with Chinese warships, the first large-scale military activity since Taiwan's election. It is not the people of Taiwan or the people of the United States that have chosen to cha change the status quo. We see what is coming out of the PRC out of Beijing in their level of aggression, both here across the strait, but across the region. And as democracies, as people who believe in freedom, it is incumbent upon us to address those aggressions. Washington cut formal diplomatic relations with Taiwan in 1979, but U.S. law requires it to ensure the island has the means to defend itself and treat all outside threats with grave concern. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. At least 39 people are dead in southern China after a fire broke out in Jiangxi province yesterday. According to a report from Chinese state media, the flames sparked from piles of renovation materials stored in the basement of a building. The fire reached several of the floors above the basement, including an internet cafe, a training center and a grocery store. Videos show thick black smoke billowing out and victims who escaped the disaster scene. Zooming out just weeks ahead of the Lunar New Year, tragedies are mounting across China. As of Tuesday, the death toll from a landslide in Yunnan province had reached nearly 50. The same day, a fire at a hotel in Shandong province killed four. Eight perished in factory fire in Jiangsu on Saturday. And last Friday, a fire in a primary school dorm in Henan province killed 13 students. Two weeks ago, a mining accident killed 16 in the same province. And a heated confrontation racking up over 6 million views. A British pianist was live streaming a performance when a group of Chinese people asked him to stop. The conversation got so heated that police officers stepped in. What sparked the heated debate? Here's a closer look. A clash in London is going viral on YouTube. British pianist Brendan Kavanaugh was playing at a train station when a Chinese TV crew came up to him. 
Did you think as of as in your cameras? Uh, you are we, are we, uh, I don't know. Are we allowed? It's legal to film in public places in the UK. Kavanaugh argued there were other people filming in the station as well. Just make sure that we are very, very secure in the reason that we don't want our voice or picture being filmed. And then, yeah, that's just the relationship between you and me, you and us, basically. What, what relationship? Just now, we are very, so I'm going to repeat that. Yeah. All of us, we cannot share our images online. Why? Yeah, there's because no reason. Why? We, that's our choice. The Chinese man later threatened legal action. We're not in communist China now, you know. Oh, I'm sorry, this is racist now. We have no, we're not in communist China. We're in a free country. Kavanaugh noted they're free to walk away if they didn't want to be filmed, adding they were in Great Britain, not China. That's when things got heated. I'm also working, but I don't want well, you to use my email. You've got the Chinese flag It doesn't, it doesn't matter. matter. Show me the Chinese matter. flag. Why are you touching her? Stop touching her! Don't touch her, please. Do not touch her. Police officers later stepped in, saying it's legal to film in public areas. The group of Chinese people left soon after. One of them later posted a video online saying they had refused to leave because they were waiting to use the public piano to film something, and that the clip they planned to film was for a company back in China that required them to keep the content private. We couldn't disclose what we were going to film on that day. It shouldn't be published in advance. The viral video sparked mixed reactions in China. Some criticized the British pianist, accusing him of being a racist, while others condemned the Chinese crew, saying they made unreasonable demands. And in more China news, retaliation against U.S. lawmakers promoting divisive content and pretending to be American voters online. A look at how Beijing interfered in the U.S. 2022 elections. More details coming tonight at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Entities China in Focus with Tiffany Meyer. Now, an update on the Russian military plane crash that allegedly killed 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war. The Kremlin has accused Ukraine of shooting it down. And today, Russian officials said they warned Ukraine that the airplane was approaching before it was allegedly shot down. The Ukrainian side was officially warned. I underline this. Officially warned 15 minutes before the plane entered the zone. They were given complete information which they received and confirmed its receipt. Yesterday, Ukraine's military intelligence said it wasn't told how Russia would bring the prisoners to the handover point and that Russia never asked to ensure airspace security. It also suggested the incident may have been orchestrated by Moscow. Kyiv has yet to confirm the allegations that it shot the plane down. Ukrainian officials also say they can't confirm that there were indeed prisoners of war on the plane. And they're calling for an international probe into the crash. From our side, we will do everything to ensure this investigation will happen. We will suggest several options, involve experts, Ukrainian as well as international. But I am convinced that just as in previous incidents, the Russians will make loud statements, but will not allow anyone into their territory, will not hand over any materials for analysis, and will simply blame Ukraine, saying we were at fault. 
That says Ukrainian officials are accusing Russia of violating the Geneva Convention. They say all responsibility for the life and health of prisoners of war is in the hands of the country that holds them captive. In Portugal, thousands of police officers are protesting for better wages. They are asking for more than double in hazard pay. According to a police union, the criminal investigation police in Portugal earns hazard pay of up to $1,000 per month. But the public security police only get around $400 per month in hazard pay. They claim this difference is discriminatory. Public security police are seeking an increase in the pay. The monthly minimum wage in Portugal is only around $900. Its economy is much weaker than those of other Western European nations such as France or Germany. Portugal's Socialist Party is currently in control of the country's parliament. Coming up, a fun and eco-friendly way to get rid of holiday trees. Residents in a Russian city hold a tree-throwing competition. A treehouse high in the Amazon rainforest canopy is the home of educational programs for indigenous communities in Peru. What's the goal behind the unusual classroom? More shortly here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. Butter chicken is one of India's most well-known dishes around the world. It's delicious and apparently also contentious. But two Indian restaurant chains are battling in court over claims to its origins. Take a look. Who invented butter chicken? One of India's best-known dishes. A Delhi judge is set to decide, with two Indian restaurant chains duking it out in court. This is Moti Mahal, a well-known Delhi restaurant brand that has served famous guests, such as former U.S. President Richard Nixon. The family behind the chain brought the lawsuit forward. It claims founder Kundin Lal Gujal created the dish, which is made with tandoor-cooked chicken, tomato gravy, cream, and butter, in a restaurant in Peshawar in the 1930s, before it moved to Delhi. We will not allow anybody to take, out, take away our legacy. Monish Gujal is the chain's managing director. It is just for public knowledge. We don't want public to be misled. In a court filing that is more than 2,700 pages long, it's suing rival Darya Ganj over the invention of butter chicken, as well as a popular lentil dish. The Gujal family is seeking $240,000 in damages, alleging the rival eatery has also copied the look and feel of its branches. Daria Ganj was established in 2019. It counters that its late family member teamed up with Gujal to open the Delhi restaurant in 1947. And that's when the dish was created. That means Daria Ganj can also lay claim to the dish's invention, it argues. Butter chicken and dal makhani are dishes which were invented in a restaurant called Motimel. And this Motimel restaurant was founded by three partners and Mr. Kundala Jaggi was one of the co-founders of that restaurant. And and that is why we use this name. The dispute has gripped the country, with the next hearing set for May. And in Russia, people have found another use for their old holiday trees. Residents in one southern city there competed in a tree-throwing competition. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the event. This is the third time the city of Rostov-Don has held a tree-throwing championship. Participants have three attempts to toss the trees as far as they can. But the competition is more than just a game. 
For the third year in a row, the regional operator and eco-activists of the city of Rostov-on-Don are holding this event. The goal is to show city residents environmentally friendly and centralized recycling of conifer trees. In this way, we educate people in a fun way. About 30 people are participating this year. The strongest and most accurate throwers get prizes. Most people come as families, appreciating the opportunity to have fun together. It's great. It helps educate people about environmental issues, and they can simply hand over the New Year tree after the New Year in an environmentally friendly way. Residents can't throw spruce or pine trees into dumpsters. Instead, the waste becomes food for animals or fertilizer. I'm for the environment. It's great that the New Year trees are not simply thrown into the trash or landfill, but still live their lives after the New Year. This year's record for throwing spruce trees was 30 feet. Over 1,500 New Year trees were collected and disposed of in an environmentally friendly way. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. More than 100 feet up in the Amazon's rainforest canopy, a connected treehouse classroom is helping to educate adults in remote indigenous communities. This, as the United Nations just marked its International Day of Education. Let's take a look. This treehouse classroom may be one of the world's most extreme educational spaces. Built over 100 feet up in the Amazon rainforest canopy, it's the home of educational programs for adults in remote indigenous communities in Peru. The goal is to provide new skills so people can pivot away from illegal logging and mining. J.J. Durand is vice president of Jungle Keepers, a local conservation charity dedicated to protecting this region of the Peruvian Amazon, one of the most biodiverse and pristine areas on Earth. For the forest, I feel very sad because living animals is dying. You see all logs in the ground, it's like people dying. It's very sad. From the other side, I feel the people here who does logging, they need a little bit of, I mean, we all need to upgrade and education. The main thing is, I think the biggest problem is education. Made from sustainable wood, it has solar power, high-speed satellite internet, and accommodations for overnight stays. To build the treehouse took us four months to build. 30 people, and they work all day from five to five. For, for us, it was tough, very hard. But, you know, building 32 meters tall treehouse, it needed a lot of effort. And it has 141 steps to get to the top. The classroom was built by Tamandua Expeditions and partners with Udemy, an online education company. Udemy is providing the indigenous young adult forest rangers of Jungle Keepers access to learning courses to study at their headquarters in the evening. The treehouse also functions as a treetop tourist stop, offering a stay in the jungle canopy at $1,450 per night. This treehouse has to be one of the most remote classrooms all over the world. Uh, these people are not only learning their skills up there, but they're learning more about their surroundings, about their community, about nature, about this land they're trying to preserve. Durand says that many young people are forced to leave school around 11 or 12 years old to take jobs in logging or mining. If they have better education, definitely um, they will have another opportunity to do because they will have different job to do also, they can have a little bit of money so they can buy other things than 
only be a logger. Deforestation across the Amazon rainforest slowed dramatically last year, according to an analysis by a nonprofit focused on monitoring the Amazon rainforest. A French tourist has found a diamond in the rough. Julianne Navas of Paris discovered this seven-carat gem in Arkansas. He was visiting the Crater of Diamonds State Park earlier this month. The chocolate-colored diamond is about the size of a gumdrop. According to the state park, more than 75,000 diamonds have been discovered since it was established. Navas reportedly decided to name the diamond after his fiancée, Karine. He hopes to cut the diamond into two stones, one for Karine and one for his daughter. And it's lucky number seven for the Cincinnati Zoo's most famous resident. Fiona, the hippopotamus turned seven on Wednesday. In honor of her big day, the zoo fed her extra watermelons as well as a special cake that was full of her favorite treats. The zoo is also giving away what it is calling the ultimate hippo getaway. The grand prize package includes a behind-the-scenes hippo tour, a $1,000 Visa gift card, and the complete library of the illustrated Fiona books. To enter, you just need to go to the zoo's website and purchase a birthday gift of either $7 or $30. You have until January 31st to enter, and the winner will be contacted by February 7th. Fiona gained worldwide attention when she was born six weeks premature. She weighed only 29 pounds and she had to be bottle fed since she was too weak to be able to nurse from her mother. Before we wrap up our show, Justin, former Trump trade advisor Peter Navarro has been sentenced to four months in jail. That's for ignoring a subpoena from the House Committee investigating the January 6, 2021 Capitol breach. He was convicted in September for two counts of contempt of Congress. Well, that's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. And feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. We'll be back with more stories tomorrow.